Here is another powerful message from New Vision Baptist Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. To hear the rest of this series and others, join us at newvisionlife.com. We are super excited to have you guys here. As Nick said, we're studying through the book of Acts, which is just an amazing book, and it it challenges us to see what God can do through the power of the Holy Spirit and some committed believers to just unleash the church. And so today we're in Acts chapter 17. And so Acts chapter 17, uh, pretty interesting. This is uh, Paul's second missionary journey, if you've been studying here with us just a little bit. And so we're really coming now towards the, the end of the book of Acts, or moving toward the end of the book of Acts. But we, we come to a very significant part uh, of this book, and Paul has made his way on this second missionary journey to the city of Athens, Greece. And so I think Paul is one of the most uh, brilliant men uh, of all times. Now, he makes it to Athens, and we're going to see in Acts chapter 17, he gets there a little bit early. He leaves, obviously leaves Luke and Timothy and Silas back to finish up some work at a previous stop, but he's going to, uh, he's going to Athens a little bit early. Is he going there as a tourist or just to get things set up for his ministry? We're, we're not sure. But what's happened, or what happens in Athens is pretty amazing, and we're going to spend some time with that today. I've entitled this message today, Provoking the Gods. Because really, that's what, uh, that's what Paul does when he shows up in Athens. He's overwhelmed by the idolatry that's there. They had a God for everything in, in Athens. Now, when, when we think about idolatry in this sort of Western uh, culture that we're in today, we think it doesn't really relate to us. But I want to say to you, first of all, that idolatry is more prevalent in our lives and in our hearts than you could ever imagine, and it is more damaging in your life and in your heart than you would, you would ever imagine. And so what, what is idolatry? Well, I, I would explain idolatry this way. When I was a kid growing up, my, my dad had a chair. Did you grow up in a home like that where your dad had a chair? It was his chair, and nobody sat in his chair. Anybody have a home like that? Just me. This is awkward. Yeah. And so my sister and I, we, we learned very early on, you, you didn't sit in that chair. Like we never sat in that chair. I, I don't think I ever sat in, in that chair. Uh, and, and I would get really nervous because we would have company come over sometimes and my dad hadn't come home from work and somebody would sit there in his chair and we're like, oh boy, that's not going to end well. Um, but idolatry in some ways is having something, anything in our life, it can be a person, uh, it can be a, our, our job, it can be a hobby, it can be our political viewpoints, anything in our, in our life that we really move to a place that sits in God's chair, that we give it more attention and affection than we give to the Lord. That's, that's what idols are. And so today, we're, we're going to provoke these idols, and, and we're going to see what this word provoke means. Uh, let's just take a look. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Here we go. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. What, what does that mean? Paul's spirit was provoked. The word provoke means move to action. It's a combination of being really angry and being just heartbroken. You see that? To be just so sad and so grieved, but also just, just, just angry. And what is he angry at? He's angry at what he sees in Athens, the, the idolatry there. It was said about ancient Athens, this intellectual capital of the world, that it would be easier to meet a God in Athens than another human being. They had a God for everything in Athens. If, if, you, if you were there and, and, and you, you had an important decision, you might go worship at the goddess of, of, of uh, Athena, the, the goddess of, of wisdom. And so you would, would offer a sacrifice there. If, if you had an athletic competition uh, coming up, you would go to the god of Nike or 
Nike, the prophet Michael Jordan in our culture today. That's where we get the word, I'm not making that up. That's where we get the word Nike. It means victory. And so you would, you would worship there. If you were a, a lady who de- desperately wanted to conceive, and you might go to the goddess Aphrodite, and so you would worship there. And all those were means to an end. And what Paul is going to say is the God that he's going to talk about is an end in and of himself. And so he, here's the point. He is heartsick about all the idols that are there in Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. And as he saw that city was full of idols, so he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Let, let me just say this as a, just a, a little bit of an aside. Paul goes to the intellectual capital of the world, and he preaches Jesus Christ as the answer to the questions that they have in life. Because here's what Paul understood. Every human being on the face of the earth has the same creator, the living God. Every person has the same problem, sin that has separated them from a living God. And every person has the same need to be reconciled, and that only happens through Jesus. And so Paul doesn't back down in Athens. He's not intimidated by the intellectual elites there. He preaches Jesus there. Now, here's what he says. Look on down at verse 22. It says, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus. Let's stop. Who, who were who were the, the, this, this group, the Areopagus? These were the people, a council who made decisions on which, which gods could be in the Parthenon. I mean, you, we, we live just down the street from Nashville, Tennessee, the Athens of the, come on, the Athens of the South. And so we, we, have, a, we have a Parthenon in Nashville. Pretty sweet, huh? And so the Parthenon was a place that it was sort of the Hall of Fame of gods. If you were the Areopagus decided, if your God had merit according to them, then that God would be placed in the Parthenon. So they say, well, hey, Paul, we'll hear you on your God. And if it's good enough, he might have a seat in the, in the, in the Parthenon. What Paul is saying is the God I'm going to talk to you about is not one God among many gods. He is the God. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't need a seat in the Parthenon. He is over the Parthenon. Now, here we go. So Paul, standing in the midst of the area of Pegasus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, that when he says you're very religious, in some ways he says, I can see that you're spiritual, but it also means that you're superstitious. I can see that you're spiritual, but it seems like you're very superstitious. For as I pass, listen to what he says. This is brilliant, by the way. Verse 23. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship, and I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul doesn't start with what he wants to say. He starts with where they were. And you're going to see this pattern throughout Acts. Paul says, hey, I was just walking down your streets, and I, I saw you guys even have a God to the unknown God. You have a, you have a shrine, you have an altar to the unknown God. And he says, now, I'm about, to, I'm about to tell you who that is, if you're interested. But ultimately, here's the other thing that Paul is saying. He's saying, Paul is saying, you have a God to the unknown God. Here's what I know about you. This system isn't working because you've got to hedge your bets, God. That's what it was, a God to the unknown God. In case all this stuff doesn't work, we're going to hedge our bets with this one. He's saying it's not working for you, is it? Now, here's the thing. Regardless of what a person might present, here's what I know about every human being on the face of the earth, because Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 tells us this, that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. What does that mean? It means this, that all of us have a longing to connect with the divine. All of us have a longing to connect with the divine. And Paul says, I know you're spiritual. You have a longing to connect with the eternal, but you've stopped short with these false gods. That's what a false god is. It's a counterfeit. 
And he says, I'm going to tell you about how you can have ultimate satisfaction. Now, verse 24, the God who made, he's telling them about this God, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, our man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath. He's saying, because you would go and, and, and as you would, you would worship, you might bring to the, to the, to the goddess Athena for wisdom. You would bring uh, some rice and some wine and, and feed her, so to speak. And she was contained in this small temple. He says, the God I'm talking about, he can't be contained. And he doesn't need anything. Paul, in essence, is saying, that's a pretty small God if it needs to be served by us. See that? Um, look on down at verse 29. He says, being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He says, you, you don't create gods. Our God is a creator. He creates us. Now, we might think, well, wait, I don't do that. Man, that's weird. Like, I, I, don't, I don't have a carving in my pocket that I break out when times get hard. I don't do that. But many times we create God in our own image. What does that mean? We, we, we create a God. We sort of narrow him down to a God that we can understand, a God we can manipulate, a God we can control, a God who really justifies all of our behavior and believes like we believe. So idolatry can be a part of, of our life. The times, Paul says, the times of ignorance uh, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Verse 31 is brilliant. It's brilliant. I want to spend about 30 seconds. Are you ready? This is absolutely ingenious. Paul says, here's what you need to know. God created every man from the one man, Adam. Adam rebelled against this God, but God has, a, has uh, the new Adam, Jesus Christ, who is going to judge the world in righteousness, meaning that you can be forgiven and you can have a righteous standing through this new Adam. And here's how Paul says, here's how I know that this new Adam, Jesus Christ, is, is the one that is going to really uh, release the verdict for your eternity by the assurance of his resurrection, or the word is proof there. He says, here's what separates Jesus from every other God, his resurrection. He's not in the grave. He defeated death. And so he's able to give you life. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. Verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among those were Dionysius, the Arapagite, and a woman named Demarius. This is what fascinates me about this. This is one of the most brilliant, this is Paul's message at Mars Hill. It's one of the most brilliant evangelistic messages of all time, and yet two people are converted. It's fascinating, isn't it? One of the most brilliant evangelistic messages of all time and only two people are converted. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons why is because idolatry will blind you to truth. That's what's taking place in Athens. These people had been given to idolatry and idolatry blinds us to truth. What was the intellectual capital of the world, Athens, Greece, producing in Paul's day? Idols. That's what they were producing. John Calvin said this, one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. He said this about our hearts. He said, our hearts are idol factories. So let, let's not, as we look at this passage today, what most people would do with this passage, and it's right. I just have a limited amount of time. What most people would do is look at this and say, this is a blueprint to take the gospel to a, a, a lost world. For you college students are here, this passage is an amazing passage to encourage you how to share Christ on your, on your campus, to say that, that Jesus can stand, the truth of Jesus Christ can stand with any, any worldview, all right? But what I'm going to do today is I'm going to say this. 
I'm going to say this. Before we can go out there and take the gospel out there, we need to take a look in here and provoke the idols in our own life because we have idols in our own life, and, and those idols need to be provoked. We, we, we need to be angry enough to do something about them, to let God do something about them. First of all, to reveal them to us today, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to ask God to reveal the idols in our life because idols will blind you to truth. Idols are substitutes. They will keep you from the real thing. Now, think about the Ten Commandments. Think just a moment. The Ten Commandments, God's first commandments He gave to His people. What does the first commandment deal with? Is it murder? Idolatry, that's right. It's not murder, it's not dishonesty, it's not adultery, it's idolatry. Look at Exodus chapter 20, starting in the very first verse. And we'll see this. And God spoke all these words saying, this is the list of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Meaning God said, I've done for you what no one could do for you. And, and, and here's what I want you to do. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't place anything before me. Now, we might look at that and say, well, that's what God desires, but what, what's in it for me? Listen, idolatry is taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing right? The things that we place in our life as idols, it, it isn't that they're bad things, is that we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. And when you take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, it, we really destroy that thing. You, you've all probably known someone who maybe wasn't able to have children, maybe to later in life they wanted kids, wanted kids, wanted kids, wanted kids, and then they, then they have a child and they make that child their, their, their idol, uh, it becomes a God. And, and after about seven years of raising a child where that child believes they're a God, nobody wants to be around that child. They've destroyed them. You've seen people like that? You haven't? I have. You see, that, that, that's what we do. I mean, politics today. Let, let's, just, let's just anger everybody here today. I mean, politics aren't bad. That's a good thing. You know, that's a good thing as we think about governing and serving. But when politics becomes your God, in other words, I'm looking to this political party and their agenda for my salvation, then that becomes an ultimate thing. Only Jesus can bring salvation, right? You take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, then it's destructive. Our country today is so divided, we demonize each other on the other side of the parties. Why? Because we've taken a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. That's what idolatry does. It destroys everything. And idolatry is more present in our hearts than you would ever think. And it is more damaging to your soul than you could ever imagine. Uh, let me give you just a definition of idolatry. And there's a ton, and then we're going to do something really different here today for the last 15 minutes, okay? Not going to be preaching, uh, just something real different. Idolatry is always first and foremost an inner spiritual sin of the heart that involves selfishly lusting after the things of the world instead of supremely loving God. What is idolatry? It is selfishly lusting after the things of the world instead of the supremacy of God. Again, idolatry is making a good thing an ultimate thing. And how can I tell if I have idols in my life? Well, you know, you can do this. You can look at how you spend your time, what gathers your affection, your affection, your heart, your thoughts, and how you spend your money, and that will show you what you value most. But here's what I want to do for the next 15 minutes if you want to, want to play along. I think there are four root idols. I mean, there are hundreds of idols, but I think there are four root idols. And here's what I think they are. I think power, control, comfort, and approval are four root idols. 
meaning this, that every idol in our life is sourced from the, one of these four root idols. And I want to go ahead and just say something that may bother you, it may free you. I struggle with every one of these four. Every one of these four. I have some idols in every one of these four. And I want God desperately to deal with me because having an idol in our life can be so damaging to our relationship with the living God. Let, 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 me, let me say it to you this way. If you're married, this is going to have some shock value, but it is completely biblical. If you're married, how would it affect your marriage if you found out your spouse has been having affairs with not one, 50 different people in this last year? How would that affect your marriage? Somebody yelled out in the first service saying it would end my marriage. I'd kill them today. I mean, that's a devastating thing. Can you imagine the pain that you would have just inflicted on your spouse? Can you get there for just a moment? Are you, can you see that? If you're dating today, if you found out your boyfriend has been unfaithful not once but multiple times, wouldn't that affect your relationship? It's a pretty easy softball answer here. Yes. Why is that important? Because that's really what idolatry does to our relationship with the living God because we are his bride and our affections first and foremost belong to him. And when I give myself to an idol, when I give myself to something and put it in the place where God is supposed to be in my life, it is as if I'm, I'm experiencing spiritual adultery and it has effects on our relationship with God, right? So let's look at these four idols that all other idols are sourced from. We're going to define them. We're going to see kind of what they look like and then see what it looks like when we're repenting of them. We're going to just spend a few minutes. And then we're going to ask the question, what, what, what would it be in your life if you move from just identifying an idol to refusing to worship that idol? And that's how we'll close. All right, here we go. The power idol. I would define the power idol this way. And there are tons of idols that are sourced from this one, right? The power idol is really this. I have worth and value only when I have influence, recognition, and fame. I have worth and value only when I have influence, recognition, and fame. And so what does it look like? Well, if one of your greatest fear is humiliation, if somebody doesn't give you the respect that you think you deserve in a certain situation in your life, then you begin to get very angry. You're easily disrespected. You struggle giving credit to others. Other people. If you're part of a project or you're on some sort of team and you make a presentation, it's hard for you to give credit to other people doing what they did because really you want the credit to come your way. You see that? Now, how would you know you're repenting from a power idol? Because you're more concerned or you're beginning to be more concerned over God's glory than your own glory. That's what it looks like. You're starting to be more concerned over God getting the credit than you getting the credit. Secondly, you're beginning to be more comfortable with celebrating the successes of other people. Now, do, do you know a top? You know what a topper is? Story topper. You know what a story topper is? You know that every time every time you have a story, they top your story. Do you know a story topper? If you don't know what, if you, do you know some story toppers? If you don't know a story topper, I got bad news. You are a topper. Everybody around you and your family knows it. They're talking about you behind your back. I'm just, I'm, I love you enough to tell you that. You need to know that, right? But really, that, if, if, when, when we're toppers, and I, I've been a topper, a topper really says, I, I, I'm not, I don't feel at rest or at peace unless I'm getting recognition. In fact, when you get recognition, I feel insecure. You see? 
but I'm beginning to repent of that and I'm starting to grow and I'm dying to that idol when, when I realize, Lord, I've found, I'm finding so much satisfaction in you getting glory and you getting praise. That is what releases me. When I can live my life in such a way that you get the credit, then I'm starting to be released from that power idol. It feels way better for me to live this. This is sort of counterintuitive, isn't it? But you, you have to understand, you were created to bring worship and give glory to God. Do you, do you see that? So you're going to be most satisfied when you're, when you're doing that. John the Baptist, I love this, John chapter 3, verse 30. You say, man, you're talking fast. I know, because we've got a lot of ground to cover. John the Baptist, who was a spiritual rock star, people are coming to him by the hundreds, maybe even thousands to the wilderness to hear him preach, and then Jesus comes onto the scene. And so John realizes now he's handing his ministry over to Jesus. And John says this in John chapter 3, verse 30. He says, he, meaning Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. That's what it looks like in your life when we're repenting of the power idol. You know what? Jesus, you must increase. I must decrease. Number two is the control idol. People that have the control idol, you're a trip. I'm just going to tell you, and uh, I am too. I, I have it my, my own self uh, a little bit. But here's, here's the definition of the control idol. I'm only content if things are occurring according to my plans and my desires. In other words, I'm only satisfied or happy if things are really occurring according to my plans and my list and my desires. When they don't, it's chaos. And you get angry when things don't go as planned. Even being around people at the office or in your family that aren't as organized as you are, uh, you have an unhealthy amount of fear, anger, and exasperation with, with, with them. Here's how you might know you have uh, the, 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 the control idol. You've got a third grader. He gets an assignment for a project in his history class. It's on Abraham Lincoln. Really what the teacher is wanting is poster board, Elmer's glue, picture of Honest Abe, and some bullet points on who Abraham Lincoln was. But no, not for your son. You go PowerPoint, drop down Abraham Lincoln holograph right at the right time, boom. It's your boy. You kill everybody, right? Because it's, it's, that's important. That might be the control idol. And, and as a parent... If something threatens the future of your child, like a bad grade, cut from the team, didn't get the solo, didn't get into the school that you thought they should get into, you come unhinged, absolutely unhinged, because you've already got the plan laid out. You just need God to come alongside and get on board with your deal. You see, I've been there. That's the control idol. You've just made a good thing an ultimate thing. We, wives, you struggle letting your husbands lead. I hear this just about every single week. And listen, I want us to be free here, but this isn't going to be the most fun 15 minutes of your life. Can I say that? Matt, you're back for the second time. You said it hurt you the first time. You've come back for more. Man, oh, for the wife. She needed to hear it. Yeah, I understand. Good. Perfect. <laughs> here's what I hear from wives all the time I wish my husband would be a spiritual leader I wish my husband would be the spiritual leader in our home can I say something ladies then let him lead he won't do it perfectly he'll grow into it but let him lead you see many times as he tries to I see I see this with guys all the time they try to take a step not every time but they try to take a step and it's not exactly the way you do it and so you come down on him and a guy will just pull back from that that's kind of the control idol well that's not the way my daddy did it 
That's a problem. That's the control idol. Do you, do you hear that? If you fear, uh, you think about your health, your health deteriorating cripples you. You might be dealing with the control idol in your life. This one has not gone over well all weekend. I'm going to see if I can go four for four. Giving to the church, you don't because you really don't trust those in charge because you don't really think they'd, they'd do with it what you would do with it. In fact, the only time you really give is when you can designate it to a cause you really believe in. Do you know what that is? That's a control idol. What does it look like for you to repent? What would it look like if you started repenting of this? What does it look like when you're experiencing some spiritual growth in this, when God is releasing you from this? When things are chaotic around you, which they will be, and you're beginning to notice yourself trusting God and resting in Him. You don't like what's going on, but you believe, God, you're sovereign, you're in control, you're up to something. You start to be at rest with your children's future. Not paralyzed by by that. You begin to realize, God, you love them more than I do. You have plans for them. And I trust you in this season. You begin to believe what Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 and 32 really says. Look at verse 31. So don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. You understand what, what that's teaching? That lost people have anxiety about all these things. Why? Because they don't know of this God who is faithful, who is sovereign. And they don't know this. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So you're beginning to to rest. And then verse 33, we just have to tag it along and, and read it because I think it's one of the most simplistic and poignant passages on how to walk our faith out that we have in the New Testament. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. That's how you know. You're beginning to trust God with the details of your life. You're beginning to rest even in the midst of chaos. People around you are like, gosh, what's up with you? You're beginning to trust in the sovereignty of God. Number three, here we go. I want to get through this one really fast because this is me. I hate this one. I don't want to open myself up to you like this. But I'm willing to do it because I wonder if some of you might struggle with the same thing. It's the comfort idol. I got the comfort. And there are so many things that come out of the comfort idol. Here's what the comfort idol says. I'm not content unless I experience a certain quality of life or a particular pleasure. That's the comfort idol. I'm not content unless I experience a certain quality of life or a particular uh, pleasure in life. Now, how would you recognize that? Well, because you are driven. What drives you and what motivates you the most is securing a life that's easier, not harder. Avoiding stress and and, and difficulty becomes primary motivating factor in your life. It is the pursuit of comfort, comfort, comfort above all things. Listen, I'm not saying that comfort is bad, but I'm saying when you make comfort the ultimate thing, it's become a God in your life. It's affecting everything. And here it is. Watch this. In times of stress, you have the comfort idol. When in times of stress, you turn to food, to porn, to sexual pleasure, entertainment, retail therapy, instead of learning first to trust and turn to God. In my life, I have been an escape artist. I have learned to escape when things got difficult. As I study the Scripture... As I study the scripture, Jesus wasn't an escape artist, 
But when times were overwhelming in that ministry, not, not that Jesus was overwhelmed, but in his flesh where there's some difficult things, yes, he retreats to be alone with the Father. Do you see that in Scripture? He retreats and is alone with the Father. There is a difference between being an escape artist and, and learning how to retreat and be in the presence of God. Do you understand that? Uh, let me explain it to you this way. Wednesday night, I, I finished up here, uh, my small group, had a meeting. After a meeting, was kind of debriefed on a little challenge that we had to deal with the next day. So I'm kind of stressed. You ever been there? I'm almost done. You can nod. Yeah. It's a part of life. So I'm driving home and I'm just grinding, thinking about what tomorrow, what am I going to have to do and fix this and on and on and on. I come on, my, my, my wife, Amy's group has is, is ended. They had a Friendsgiving party which meant there was a honey-baked ham left over from that party. As soon as I walked in the door, boom, it was like a shrine. <laughs> Whoever came up with honey-baked ham, bad idea. Ham is just good in and of itself. It didn't need anything else, but if you want to give it something, you give it that glaze, what is on that? It makes it magical. <laughs> and I don't even realize that, man, I'm stressed and I'm just worshiping. Amy walks in a few minutes later and she said, hey, uh, I can make you a sandwich. I'm good. And then it dawned on me because I had to preach this first message on Thursday night. No, you're not. You see, when things get difficult, we just, we just go to comfort. That's really what I've done all my life. That's really what I've done all my life. I've been an escape artist. I want to learn to repent of that. And when I'm feeling anxious, when I'm feeling stressed, when I'm feeling overwhelmed, I don't want to escape any longer because you escape to an idol. Let's be honest about those things. Whether it's honey-baked ham or sexual fulfillment, whatever, for a, a moment, for a moment, it works. But it's a synthetic. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. So I want to learn to, to start trusting Christ. Now, what, what would it look like? What would it look like for me to start repenting of the comfort idol. Really start trusting Christ, learning to turn to him over all these other things. Um, I've had a hard time verbalizing this all weekend, so I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can do that. I, I, think about my, I think about my own life, and I think I project out into the future. Do you do that? I mean, I'm, I'm getting close to 50 years old now, and I'm thinking, I don't want to work like this when I'm 65. I mean, after the second service, I was, uh, after the first service, I was asleep in my office with my boots off, and Nick came. If he'd not come in and woke me up, I don't know if I'd have made it out. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know that I, I love what I, I don't know that I can, I don't know that. I, so I, I think it's my job to provide a comfortable landing spot for me in the future. Now, again, don't send me an email. Should we save for retirement? Yes, that's just smart. But you can't make that the ultimate thing in your life. Do you see that? At some point, we have to trust God that he knows what we need, you see? And if it means, here's where I am in my life. I'm not saying, if it means that I will work my fingers to the bone well into my 80s if the Lord allows me to live that long, but I have his presence, I'll take that over being flush with cash living outside of his presence. I want this more. I want this more. You see, here's how you know you're repenting of the comfort idol. You begin to see money as a way to fund the kingdom, not merely your lifestyle. Single guys, listen to me. Single guys, listen to me. You know you're repenting of the comfort idol when you value your girlfriend's holiness more than your own physical fulfillment or pleasure. Let's look at this passage. 
This is the deal. Why do we go to idols? Because they provide a little bit of sizzle. They quench for a moment the longing of our soul. Look at this. Believing this is what wins the day. The psalmist says, you make known to me the path of life. Here it is. Look at this phrase. In your presence there is, read it with me, fullness of joy. Do you believe that? Let's read it again. God, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Do you believe that? The only way that you and I will break free from the false gods, from the counterfeit gods, from the synthetics in our culture is to really and truly believe that. God, in your presence is fullness. And isn't it what Jesus said in John 10, 10? I came that you may have life and have it what? More abundantly, fullness. Can I ask you something today? Are you full? Spiritually, emotionally, are you full? The idols that you've, I really think that's what Paul's saying in Athens. When he says, hey, I'll walk around your town. You got a God for everything. You even got one to an unknown God. He's saying, you're not full. Because if you were full, you wouldn't have needed that. But the question is, where would I find fullness? It's in his presence as I'm turning away. God, thank you for identifying the idol and help me to see where that presence is. It's in you. Last thing, it's the approval idol. Number four and we're done. The approval idol. Do I have this? Yes. The approval idol says this, I'm not content or at peace unless I'm loved or accepted by a particular person or a group of people. I'm really not content or at peace unless I'm loved or accepted by a particular person that we choose or a group of people. How do you know you have this idol? Because a negative post about you or a negative comment, you spin out. It's the approval idol. Somebody unfollows you on social media, and it messes with you, doesn't it? You send a text, and you can tell on your phone that they read it, but they didn't return it. I hate that. He read it. Why didn't he return it? He doesn't like me. He's mad at me. That's approval idol. You see that? That we're wrestling with. It's not right to point at each other. I saw some of you doing that, pointing like that. They, don't, don't, don't do that. That's wrong. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> you got up on Saturday morning and you checked Facebook and you realized that a lot of your friends were at a party that you weren't invited to. A baby shower, you didn't, you didn't get the invite. It was a wedding that took place yesterday that you didn't get invited and it spun you out. That's the approval idol. You feel unloved because you're single. You won't stand up for holiness in your physical relationship with your boyfriend because you're afraid of, of disappointing him and you so want his approval. How would you know that you're starting to repent of the approval idol when somebody criticizes you this week? And the first thing you do, instead of responding back to that, you're reminded of what God says about you. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. That you're accepted in Christ. You're reminded of your worth. If you're a believer, can I just remind you of what you're worth today? You know what you're worth? 
You're worth the creator of the universe sending his son to die in your place. That's what you're worth. And when someone criticizes you, it's not that that doesn't hurt, but you're instantly reminded of what God says about you. And what God says starts to win the day. You start to live out of what he says about you. Single ladies, as it relates to your sexuality, you value, you start to value God's approval over your boyfriends. Married men, married men, your wife hasn't been as responsive as you had hoped or that you like. And so because of that, because of her lack of responsiveness, you are prone to go back into some base things. And maybe even the enemy would say you're justified in clicking on that. But you know you're repenting of the approval idol when when she's not meeting your needs, but instead of escaping, you start to retreat and you move into the presence of this living God and you have found something that you never, ever knew, that it is God and God alone who can meet the deepest needs of your soul. And this wasn't even sexual. The deepest need of your soul is a longing to be loved and approved, and only He can do that. Married women, your husband hasn't been there for you in a way that you thought he should. He's not listening. He's not the spiritual leader. He's not the emotional leader. And on and on and on it goes. Wonder if your husband's weaknesses could drive you to God's strengths. Can I tell you something? Everything your husband is not, God is and more. And wonder if it drove you deeper into the presence of of the Lord, and God was meeting those needs, and you still love that husband unconditionally, you might just find that God would do a fresh new work in your marriage. Power, control, comfort, approval. Power, control, comfort, approval. They are the root idols that every idol is sourced from. And let me close with this. It is one thing to identify an idol because some of you today, I believe this, God has showed you something and you could point to the one, the one root idol that you struggle with more than the others. You can do that. It's one thing to identify an idol. It is a completely different thing to stop worshiping it, to repent of it. Well, how would we do that? How would we do that? It might start by saying something like this. Jesus, Jesus, would you begin to teach me to find in you what I was looking for in that? Idols are cheap substitutes. Healing begins when you start to believe this. Jesus, you and you alone satisfy. Let me say it to you again. Idols are cheap substitutes. Healing begins when you realize that Jesus and him alone brings satisfaction. I want you to stand all across this room. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing this truth as the final thing of this day today because I want you to leave today being reminded of one thing that is only Christ who satisfies. Idols don't. Idols don't. Men, can I talk to you for a moment? Most men don't sing. It's one of the reasons why you're stuck spiritually. 
sing praises, sing this truth to your God. Don't worry what other people think about you. Sing this truth to your God, and God will begin to transform your heart to live this out this week. You will find yourself, you sing this truth to your God, you'll find yourself this week when there's a chance to go worship at that temple of that false God being reminded of where satisfaction is. God will bring this truth back to your mind. Let's sing this truth to our living God as a community of faith. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this message, we'd like to invite you to one of our Sunday morning services. We meet at 820, 940, and 11 a.m. If you would like more information or would like to watch or listen to more of our services, please visit us online at newvisionlive.com. This broadcast is brought to you by New Vision Baptist Church, where our mission is guiding people to lives of gospel transformation. 